Welcome back, Quest for You fans. This is episode 546, and I am in interview mode, and I'm loving this new challenge. I get to know not only my friends better, but I'm also meeting new people. This is awesome. And today, I bring you one of those new and highly interesting people that I recently met. My friend Susie, who I interviewed in episode 537, introduced me to her friend, Kathy. Kathy Lucetti is an author who published 10 books and is now working on her 11th, which we touch on in this episode. Her focus for most of those works have been the stories of the people of the American frontier, a term that she defines for us in this episode. She has chronicled stories of women and men, their daily lives and struggles in a way that had not been done before, and it even caught the attention of former First Lady Laura Bush. But what fascinated me most was everything that we shared. Here I am, in the house of a person that I have never met before, and we both deeply appreciate some of the same things. We both know Texas, where Kathy grew up, and an appreciation for the desert. We both enjoy the outdoors, and most interestingly, we both love climbing. Kathy has summited peaks as high as 20,000 feet, not nearly as much as I have done, so I have a long way to go. We talk about our love for being outside, but we also talk about the conflicts it brings when it puts us behind on our work that is waiting for us when we get back. My favorite author is also Kathy's favorite author, and you'll have to listen to find out who it is. Kathy, like many others I've interviewed, has traveled near and far. She, on the other hand, has not only brought material mementos back from her trip, but she has also shown an interest in other cultures and then incorporates her learnings into her books. What a great way to travel, to use what you learned and then turn it into something that you can pass on to others. I think you will really enjoy my conversation with Kathy and take away some ideas you can implement in your life. In many ways, Kathy is a self-starter. The adventures she undertook didn't fall into her lap. She stepped into them with some courage and a willingness to learn. And then she remained persistent and figured out a way to make them work for her. Don't we face situations like that as well in our life? Why not try the same? Be open-minded and be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable and then see where inspiration takes us. Enjoy this conversation and I'll talk to you soon. Much love. Thank you, Kathy, for inviting me into your home, into your beautiful house here in the hills, and for taking the time to speak to me. Oh, you're more than welcome. I think what you're doing has lots of significance, and I'm really happy to be involved. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I would like to start by asking you, you met Laura Bush? <laughs> I did. I did meet Laura Bush. Um, as a matter of fact, I grew up in Midland, Texas, where Laura and, you know, George also grew up. Um, we went to different high schools, so I didn't know her there. But she had a symposium at the White House um, about women writing in the West. And she came across my book, which is titled Women of the West, one of my first books. 
And she realized that, you know, I had lived in Midland, and she sent me an invitation to come to this symposium at the White House. It was quite something. There were probably about 20 other people, 20 other authors who were there. I spent a lot of time with her dog, probably more time with her dog than I did with Laura. Um, But she was very gracious, and she's a real advocate of reading and, of course, writing. So she wanted to honor you know, writers. Mm -hmm. So yes, I did meet her. And um, that was my little jaunt to the White House. Mm -hmm. It was about maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. What kind of dog does she have? I don't know. It was a yappy one, a little (laughs) yappy one that just ran everywhere into every room. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think it peed anywhere that I could tell, but it was (laughs) certainly at home in the White House. What can I say? (laughs) How did you feel when you received that invitation? Well, you know, as with most things, I usually think they're scams and throw them in the trash. I mean, it's happened two or three times that one was for the James Beard Award, and it came as a telegraph. And I thought, oh, no one sends telegraphs, and I threw it in the trash. And about a day later, I thought, you know, I should just look at that. And I opened it up, and it was you know, an invitation to the James Beard Awards in New York, and of course, and I won. So um, the same with Laura's invitation. It came, you know, on big double-dip stationery and very impressive, and I thought it was, you know, an ad for real estate. (laughs) I threw it in the trash. (laughs) And then again, that little voice said, no, why don't you take another look? And it turned out to be this wonderful invitation. So so now I sort of double check before I throw things in the trash. And you probably get a lot of mail because you're... I, well, I do. I mean, less so now because I haven't published in a few years. But mm-hmm. uh, it was it, it was quite hot and heavy for a while. Yeah. Speaking of publishing, so you have written how many books? Well, I've written about nine books, um, eight, seven books on the American West, one book on um, menopause called the Hot Flash Cookbook: Recipes to Eat to Reduce Love that title. Hot Flashes. Um, then another work for hire about a dog named Skid Boot, and then I think there was one other book, and then this one that I'm working on now would be the tenth. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in the Midwest. Is that where your fascination with women? of that area came from? You know, I grew up in Texas, and it was right on the old goodnight-loving cattle trail where they used to have the first roundups as cattle went cross-country. And so I was really aware of the influence of the Pioneer West. I mean, it was just very mythic for me at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd read the stories of pioneer women. I had pioneers in my own kind of family tree. Mm -hmm. And... So in researching some of these pioneer stories, um, I mean, for example, I had a great-grandmother who came across the plains. She had seven children, seven sons, and one of the stories that was handed down is that she would wait until they were all asleep at night, and then she would go in and spank them. (laughs) It was the only way she could discipline them. (laughs) They were too big and they were too rowdy, and so she waited until then. Um, But anyway, so I was really fascinated by the stories of the frontier Mm -hmm. and um, and so started writing these books and, you know, researching all over the country to find old photographs, reading the diaries and the journals and trying to break them into different categories. One book was about women. 
and each uh, ethnicity was also represented in the books. So there would be, you know, black Americans, there would be Native Americans, Asian Americans, and which was a little bit difficult to find primary source information based in the 1800s and 1900s, mm-hmm. since not everybody, you know, wrote or spoke English or kept journals or wrote letters. So mm-hmm. it was a huge research project. And so each book is, um, you know, treats different subjects. One is men, one was evangelists, one was uh, women doctors, children. I think I did almost every subject related to the American West except animals. And at that point, I just stopped. I think I'm a little bit sick of the West right now. Well, you just explored in yeah, depth no, everything did. that there is. Yeah, I did, every, every single bit. So this was something that started when you were little? I mean, I was always fascinated by the frontier and by the outdoors and by the West. My father was a geologist, so we were Mm -hmm. always out, you know, backpacking or hiking or going down rivers or discovering oil. Any of the things that he did, he dragged his family along. So I always had a kind of adventure interest, but it wasn't until the first book was published and actually did very well that I realized that I wanted to explore the subject. And the book was actually an idea of a friend of mine who got a little bit of money from her inheritance and said to me, well, why don't we write a book about pioneer women? And I said, oh, okay, let's see what a book looks like. And we (laughs) would take books from the library and put them on the floor and say, okay, let's see, they need... Hmm, they need a table of contents, they need a foreword, they need footnotes. Uh, so neither of us really knew anything about writing. But the book turned out, it's still in print, and it turned out to be, you know, won awards and this and that. So I decided, well, maybe I should write more books <laughs> <laughs> about the West. But it never had been a an ongoing passion as a child to write these books. It just seemed... To work out that way. Very interesting. You kind of fell into it. I did fall into it, mm-hmm. and but I recognized a kind of niche and just sort of went with it. Mm-hmm. You know. How would you define frontier? Well, that's a fun question. I'm glad you asked that because as a writer, you could actually make the frontier anywhere because uh, the early the colonists who came to America, their frontier was New Hampshire. You know, and then there was another frontier in the Midwest, and then there was the frontier with Mexico. That's what I think when I think frontier. I think Mexico. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So you could actually, the frontier I most often chose was the one, you know, between 1850 and 1915 that involved the gold rush and people trying to come to California. But there were also, you know, the Jesuit priests, for example, who explored Canada and the Pacific Northwest, that was a frontier to them. So I was able to kind of fudge frontiers depending on what kind of information I found. That's one of the fun things about writing your own book is that you can make your own parameters. You mentioned books about menopause, cooking. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Well, it came about obviously when I went into menopause and had terrific hot flashes, very uncomfortable. And you know, read all the books and thought, I wonder if there are any recipes that would help, you know, eliminate the hot flashes, because obviously there are are phytoestrogenic foods, I mean, yams and greens and tofu. I thought, I wonder if I should make a cookbook called the Hot Flash Cookbook. And 
all the big publishers in New York when turned it down they said oh no no we don't want to talk about hot flashes that's kind of creepy but of course chronicle books where everyone is you know 20 years old they said oh we've heard of hot flashes those are so cool (laughs) you know so they published the book you know it was republished several times and I remember one night after it had come out Peter and I were watching TV and we never watch Jay Leno, but we happened to turn on Jay Leno for some serendipitous reason. Mm -hmm. And he was holding my book up and he was saying, he was totally roasting it. He said, can you believe how crazy they are out in California? They even have a cookbook for menopause. And then he began to mimic himself being a menopausal woman. And he would say, oh, honey, just leave me alone. I just don't want to eat any more wine. And so he was roasting the book. And everybody was laughing and laughing. That book got more publicity because of... Of course. I was just going to say, this is Jane probably Leno. good for you. There's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, it's... Right. Um, so the, the book actually did very well. Nice. And, but it had odd repercussions because people would call me and contact me and be very anxious and say, well, you know, is it okay if I eat broccoli? We have cancer in the family. And, and I would have to say, you know, it's just broccoli. I'm not a doctor. Um, broccoli is not going to hurt you. So I was put in the position of having to be a so-called expert mm. on, you know, everything that everybody had. Mm-hmm. But, but it, was a, it was a fun, it was a very fun book. What brought you to California? When did you come to California? Um, let's see. I came with my first husband, who I met in the Peace Corps. We were in Colombia together and got engaged and came here to the Bay Area for the first time. So we we married, and I had a family of three sons, and never really felt 100% California or Bay Area, but am obviously stuck here and living well here, and my life is here. But I do get out to the desert whenever I can, mm. uh, whether it's Nevada or Death Valley or back to Texas. I really like a kind of desert environment. So, so you're not into the mm. mountains as much. I got a really strong interest in summiting high altitude and got to 20,000 feet in Nepal. So I do like mountains. I like climbing mountains. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not a huge fan of the Sierra Yeah, I like to climb them, but I'd much rather be in the desert. This is very interesting for me because I discovered my passion for mountains this last summer. Oh, really? I started climbing, actual mountain climbing, two years ago. Oh, really? And then I found a climbing partner who is very much into mountaineering. Yeah. And he took me all over Yosemite last summer. Oh, how fantastic. And I had no idea. Isn't it amazing? I had no idea. Well, see, that's what happened to me at a certain age. I think I was 45. I woke up one morning and thought, I want to get to 20,000 feet. And I'd never really climb. I mean, I didn't become a technical climber. Mm -hmm. I'm just a a trekker, basically. Um, And every year I would add 1,000 feet. I would go to Kilimanjaro or go to Machu Picchu and then... The last thousand feet was actually in Nepal with a Sherpa and a climbing Sherpa and ropes and axes and the whole thing. And then after I got to 20,000 feet, it was just over. 
it had been about a six year, six or seven year obsession, basically. So when you say you love climbing in the mountains, I really know what you're talking about. And I have to There's say, There's nothing like it. There is not, I mean, you get up to the top and the feeling inside, <laughs> it's, I can't describe yeah. it. Like you've accomplished. The oh yeah, most major, most important thing in the world, right? And right at this Absolutely. moment. Absolutely, and you, your body has taken you there. You had the energy to do it. You had the strength to yep. do it. You didn't fall off a rock. You yep. didn't hurt yourself. You are there, and it's, it is just oh, that's wonderful. You're a summiter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there is an interesting too. I have this fascination with altitude as well yeah. because I, this was. Last summer was my first time in high altitudes, and uh -huh. I actually, in the beginning, we we climbed Cathedral Peak, uh -huh. and right before the top, I started getting dizzy. Oh, for the first time, I've never yeah. had altitude sickness before. Yeah. I started getting dizzy, and I just wanted to fall. I wanted to go to sleep. Yeah, I felt really How tired. Interesting. And then I just didn't want to let this go. So we went, I went back with another friend and it felt much better. I was so fascinated by how your body just acclimates. It does, it does acclimate. And what they told us in Nepal is that actually you could summit, you know, 10 times. You could get to higher and higher altitudes and everything would be fine. And then one time you would have a terrible reaction. So there's no way of really knowing how you're going to react. Just, uh, you just have to keep doing it. And do you ever take Diamox with mm -hmm. you? Yeah, because that that would help. Mm. Um, if you had, if you did have a bad incident, you could just take the Diamox, and it usually reverses it. Mm. But oh, I really know, I really know what you're talking about. It's just. Um, and then I feel when I'm, I I would do this almost every weekend. Mm -hmm. And then when I feel I'm here in the Bay Area, home on yeah. the weekends. I feel the mountains calling me. It's like this weird thing, mountains calling, right? People say that. No, it's but true. But I feel like I need to be in the mountains. It's true. I can't be here with all these cars and all these people. I need to be out. You know, I have to tell you, Janine, since I stopped, I have had a much better life because it was really, it was like you. It was like, I am not happy here unless I'm out climbing something. Wow. And, and it would be really annoying because that meant I would not get any work done and it would cost money because you had to go. And, and, you know, every mountain looked like something that I wanted to climb. And so it's kind of a relief to be old and not... <laughs> Not to have to do that. I have so much more time now to really write books and work on things because it was, it's an obsession. It's really an obsession. And how nice to know that you're obsessed too. Yeah, I read that a little bit about you and I thought, well, I wanted, I want to ask her about this. But of course, I didn't really know we, we well, could it relate. Just, but yeah, but see, you just woke up one day and wanted to climb. And so did I. I just wanted to climb. Well, it was mostly because of my climbing partner who took yeah. me out there. I had yeah. no idea. He would take me, we would uh -huh. climb up a mountain, and he'd say, oh, let, let's go a little higher. And suddenly we were at the lower cathedral lakes. Uh -huh. I'm looking at this, and I'm like, this is the most fascinating <laughs> thing I've ever seen. The whole world is missing out on this. <laughs> why? And I thought of the people sitting and watching television, and I'm thinking to myself, I know. why would anybody not do this? Yeah, yeah. And it's very interesting. I'm in a very similar position that yeah. you just described because every weekend I would be out, I wouldn't get my stuff done. My podcast work, I'm mm -hmm. I'm trying to mm -hmm. get into public speaking. Mm -hmm. 
But I wouldn't do anything about you it. You wouldn't do anything because you're out <laughs> climbing. <laughs> and that, but you know, that could take you in a direction too. You have no idea. You may be the voice of the mountains. You may be recording from, you know, the highest peak. You don't you know. know. I mean, you have to honor your obsessions because <laughs> they're think, stronger than you are. <laughs> yes. I think at this point, I have made a few sacrifices. I've stayed home and I want uh-huh. to do this. Uh-huh. I want to do more interviews and meet people. It, this mm-hmm. is also important to me. So mm-hmm. just a balancing act. Sure. So when did you stop climbing? We went to Pocaldi Peak, which was 20,000 feet. I got together a party of four people. We had Sherpas that I had used the year before because I was 1,000 feet. went to 18,000 feet that year. And... Um, they took us up this mountain that's really kind of a training mountain for the real Himalayan, you know, explorers and real mountaineers. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a technical climber, so I'm just a person who summits. So I can't really claim to be a climber except that we did get to 20,000 feet. And people will look at the photographs of it now and they'll say, is that Sherpa pushing you? <laughs> <laughs> It was probably the hardest work I had ever done because it was a really steep slope and the snow was just so deep and it was light like crystal, like little powder, and so Mm. you sank into it. The good news about it was that it was so deep that you wouldn't just, you know, Slide slide down the mountain, but it was such hard work. And after that, it felt like it was over. I had devoted probably seven or eight years to only thinking about mountains, only you know, sliding down every mountain I could find, glissading down, you know, getting cut up, um, getting exhausted, traveling around the world. I did a couple of treks in Peru, and and then it just was over. You felt like you were done. It was something about getting to 20,000 feet, and then that was it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in that eight-year period of time, I've had really wonderful adventures Mm. Um, and it'll it's really fun to look back at the photographs and think gosh who was that person (laughs) I don't want to do it now (laughs) that happens to me just looking at pictures from last year yeah who who is this I did did this wow but you know it really does call up the idea of how people get inspired like what yeah what inspires people and where does inspiration come from there was nothing in my background that would have led me to that. It just literally bounced me out of bed one morning with this thought. So I don't, I don't know. And I think I had the same kind of inspiration when I wrote the books. I was raising kids at the time. I had three sons um, and wrote seven books with three sons, all under the age of, they were like six, seven, eight, seven, eight, nine, nine, ten, eleven. They were just like a little football team. So it was really hard. But I was obsessed with the idea of capturing the West. So that was obsession number one. Summiting was number two. So I don't know what number three is. <laughs> I don't, you know, I mean, maybe just living comfortably and, and experiencing every day, you know, all the kind of ho-hum things about you know life how do you feel about the bay area now have you come to terms with it or do you no no it doesn't inspire me no at all i mean i think it's lovely i love living here i'm looking at a beautiful view Mm -hmm. Uh, my family is here my husband's here i don't get inspired until i go to nevada or the eastern sierra 
So and then things start to, I feel excited. And I don't feel excited here, but, but you can live without excitement. We, you know, we end up kind of stuck really in place, and it would be very hard to move somewhere else now at this stage in life. But mm-hmm. it's still, I can still get to Nevada pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So. so it's really the desert fascination. It's something about the, the desert and the mountains. I mean, I'm still, I still love the mountains, but there's just some something wild about it that you don't find here. This is very tranquil, mm-hmm. um, weird but tranquil. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I you know I could talk a little bit about the new thing that I'm working on. What I basically have done in traveling in a diff- different countries is when I travel, I try and ask people what they do for headaches because I've always had headaches, and it's a kind of way of striking up a conversation even if you don't know the language you can hit your head and say "Mm, head hurts what do you do and and so it's been fun to find out what different remedies are in different countries and that's the basis of this book called travels with a headache in which you find out what kind of potions people use what kind of behaviors they have stories associated with the headaches finding the people who are kind of curanderos who have their own methods for treating headaches so travels with a headache is basically interviews with people around the world about their headaches which I love that you know, well it's different because everybody apparently has them and everybody does you know something different for them although there was the trip to the Amazon where I found a Bora chief deep in the Amazon, and I was he's surrounded by this pharmacopoeia of herbs and tendrils and trees and vines and flowers, all of which can be made into medicines. And I asked him what he did for headache, and he just looked at me and he said, Do you have an Advil? Just, you know, and I'd expected some really strange concoction and possibly music and dancing, and no, he wanted an Advil. So it's those kinds of moments that I think are really fun and show the universality of people and suffering and headaches. You actually made me think when you said earlier, you don't know what your next inspiration is, that your inspiration may have come from some of these trips that you've taken. Well, I think I think so. Yeah, it I sounds think so. like it. Yeah. So yeah. this is the next book you're working on. That's the book I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. And um, my agent has okayed it. She's taking it, which means that um, hopefully she'll be looking for a publisher and hopefully it'll be, we'll find a publisher and then I'll finish it. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a long process, but I really am ready for it to be finished <laughs> but does it include recipes and ideas that you oh, yeah. received from your travels oh definitely I mean there are all these wonderful things like for example in Peru there's something called a headache tree basically when people chop their firewood they replant the branches from this particular tree and it makes this very dense hedge and they use those branches actually to boil for a tea to make headaches and then the Tarahumara Indians in the Copper Canyon use horn toads and you're from texas you probably know about those little horn toads right Mm -hmm. well imagine having to rub one across your forehead to get rid of your headache i mean poor thing (laughs) i I never could find out 
from my sources whether it killed the little horned toad or just got it all excited. I don't know. But um, Have you tried it? No, I haven't. I haven't tried it. I couldn't bring myself to, you know, a lot of the remedies I really, I mean, outside of Cusco, they sell smoothies made out of live frogs, and that is used for a headache, and I couldn't bring myself to drink it. But Wow. But it's good to know about it. <laughs> right. And, and it, it makes a, you know, a real addition to the book because it makes an interesting story. What was something you did try? Every time I go to a marketplace, if they have a little potion in a, you know, in a container, I'll take a tiny bit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was basically something called Brugamisia, which is was prepared for me in the Amazon by this man who knew about my headache, you know, headache stories. And he wrung this essence out of the center of the plant, and he said, "One drop will cure your headaches." two drops and you're dead and he just laughed ha 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 and I thought huh I wonder if one drop how they titrate that is it for a man for a 200 pound person a 130 pound person you know that would make a lot of difference so I took a tiny 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 bit obviously I didn't die and it did cure the headache so oh it did yeah it did so there are and then the other night Um, in the restaurant, this person that you just met here, we happened to strike up a conversation about headaches, and she offered a headache remedy, and I said, oh, no, I've never tried that. And then we started talking. It turns out she had taken classes with Teller Fenner, who is this really interesting ethnobotanist who takes people on two-month-long trips around the West, and all they do is forage for plants and find berries and um, when I went with him, he made something like pancakes out of mesquite flour. Wow. But anyway, she had all these wonderful books, and she was moving to the East Coast, and she couldn't take them. And so just that moment in the restaurant, and I'm now here with 30 wonderful books for my research. I can't believe it. I've got an entire library. So There's something to be said about striking up a conversation with strangers it's just amazing i had this conversation with susie who is your Mm -hmm. friend and this is how i met you and i interviewed her she is really good at that she is always striking up conversations with people on the street and i feel like this is a skill that we don't develop anymore because we're tied to our phones i know and i i listened to that interview and she said she would rather be alone because that allowed her to go out and contact people mm-hmm. and talk to them. And it's just, it, it really is difficult because if you're not really outgoing, um, it's a little bit harder to make those connections. But th- in this particular case, it was my husband who said to this woman who was the hostess at the restaurant, oh, did you know my wife is going to publish your book? So he's the one who made the connection. Right. So I have to just take him out in public and turn him on, and he'll, right. <laughs> I know, he'll do I'm, it for me. I can, I can relate. I'm more of an introvert myself. I'd rather not bother anyone. I know, and yet each person is like a gold mine. Yes. If you tap them and you show some interest and you hear something, you just never know what you're going to find. It's... And there's also this fear that people don't want to be bothered, but yeah. it's not the case. Yeah. As soon as I speak to somebody, yeah. people want to connect. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. 
Well, I just wish I would wake up some morning like I did with the summiting and say, okay, I'm going to go out and talk to 10 different people today and find out what they know. (laughs) I wish I had that passion, but I don't. But back to the summiting thing, I thought about this earlier. I think you already had this passion for the outdoors since you were a child. Definitely. That's the summiting. It's, It's outdoors. And I was the same way as you. I thought, why am I so in love with these mountains? Yeah. Well, as a kid, I was always out. There yeah. was my grandparents, my grandma said, no TV during the day. You yeah. go out. Yeah. So I was out. Yeah. And nature was entertaining back yeah. then. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's so nice to hear. And I think that yeah. love, that, ta- that, that passion for the outdoors stays within us. And I think we just reconnected with it. And in a really interesting way, because the climbing is just so, it's just amazing learning about how to, you know, how to breathe at altitude. And I don't know, it's just, uh, it's very exciting. Well, it's also mentally engaging. It's not just physical. You have to think, where do you place your feet? What, you know, there's skills involved. Exactly. So I like to read a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I've, since I've been a kid, I've been a bookworm. And I'm always interested and fascinated by the routines of writers. Mm-hmm. It takes, I imagine, it takes a lot of discipline mm-hmm. to sit down every day and write. Mm-hmm. Do you have a specific routine around writing to make sure you, you yeah. do sit down and write? Yeah. Well, it was very hard, I mean, at first. The first two books were very difficult to force myself to just stay seated and do the work. I mean, I remember just getting up and walking around. and I mean, I felt like I could just literally beat my head against the wall because I didn't want to have to do that work. And then by the third book, it was, it was very easy. It was very easy, and I would just write and think and write and think. But I wasn't a natural. It wasn't as if I had been writing since I was a child, keeping Mm. long journals and writing poetry. Mm. I was really more of a visual sort of outdoor person. So now I do have, I do write in the morning. I have to be up early so I can think. And then I do all the other things after afternoon when I can't think anymore. So I like. I feel like if I get four good hours a day, mm-hmm. then that's pretty good um, for me. Since I write nonfiction, it involves a lot of research, mm-hmm. and so I'm constantly going back and forth between notes and footnotes and research and online this and that. So it's a little different than a novelist, somebody who's dredging from their interior and trying to imagine how things are going to be. So a lot of it is research-based. So I have to be able to sit at a table and, you know, bounce back and forth between sources and and then do the editing. And it's a whole routine. It's a little bit like mountain climbing. I'm looking now at this book, and I realize that it's going to be like climbing a mountain because it's going to be hard work to put all the pieces together. I know how to do it by now. And when something is your job... It's how you earn your living. It's really, you don't have a choice. I mean, you just have to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's more like uh, going to work for me rather than going to uh, inspiration. But do you enjoy it, the process of it? I enjoy enjoy coming up with my own idea and thinking, oh, 
I think that should come to life as a book. Mm -hmm. And then seeing it actually happen and knowing how long it takes. So I do enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely have been able to live outside of the usual work boundaries by coming up with my own ideas and right. selling them. So, right. yeah, so I like that. Do you like to read? I do like to read books. What do you like to read? Well, it's a whole series of books. Named. Oh, here we go. Well, Love in the Time of... Oh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I love, I, love I love him. He's my favorite. Is he? Oh. Yes. Yeah. Magic realism. I used to, when I first started, when I first started writing... Um, I mean, I read him in Spanish because I was yep. in the Peace Corps in Colombia, and I wasn't far from, you know, where he lived. And so when I first started writing, I remember going through many of his books and just taking the phrases. And and I had, they were sort of like cheat sheets. I had about 10 pages of Marquez phrases because they were so magical. Yes. And if I would look at those then it would kind of release something in my mind that would then allow me to make my own sort of magical, more creative things. I don't really think I've ever found anyone <laughs> like like Marquez. You know, the magic, the realism, magical realism is just, it's just wonderful. I try and infuse history writing with a little bit of, you know, a oh, little bit of that. That's good to know. Yeah. So in um, Colombia, I I don't want to. I know I'm deviating from the subject here, yeah. but th I did want to ask about this earlier. How long were you there? Uh, two years. What two is years. it like to be in the Peace Corps? I've always wondered, and I do not know. Oh, okay. Well, I was very young when I went. It was like 23. You know, it was such an adventure. It was the first time I'd gone to South America, obviously. And back then, they had things that were called parachute sites, which means that they just put you there by yourself. <gasps> and <laughs> they don't literally drop you out of a plane, but they might as well. So that I went into this little village by myself, learn, still learning Spanish, and had to figure things out. And it was such an adventure. I just loved it. And I'm really happy now that I wasn't put into some organization where I would just teach along with a group of people. I really had to figure out what I was going to be doing because they had trained me in chickens. Mm -hmm. And these people had been raising chickens for generations, and they knew everything about chickens. And they were not going to take chicken you know, education from some <laughs> English major from the U.S. So I ended up working in, um, the women had a cooperativa where they made these woven goods, and somebody would come out from Bogota and give them a very, very low price and then take all their beautiful merchandise and sell it at a, you know, jammed up price. So mm. I worked with them in to help them learn how to market and how to sell in the United States and get better prices. And so it was a really a lot of fun and it seemed to be a really good project and it benefited the women. Mm -hmm. And I really loved it. I, I loved Colombia. I loved the adventure of it. 
not knowing what was going to happen, where I was going to go. And I loved my other, you know, the Peace Corps buddies that I met, all these people from around the country. So it was really, it was a wonderful experience. Did you make any friendships in Colombia that you... Well, I ended up <laughs> marrying. Oh, that's right. Yeah, getting married. <laughs> it was... Uh, <laughs> Um, and and actually, my my closest friend was my roommate there, mm. and we're still very very close. Nice. She and her husband bought 800 acres outside of Panama, so they're in the Costa Rican jungle. They loved the experience so much that they ended up, you know, living in the jungle. Wow. Now, so nice. So if I ever need to be in the jungle for a while, I can always visit her. Yeah. That might be the next that <laughs> might be your next inspiration. Go Possibly. There. Possibly. I yeah. think we found it. Yeah. So back to the books. I'm curious if you read to get inspired for the projects that you're writing about or are you reading for pleasure or both? It depends. I mean, I've been going down to the library and just picking up books that you know, that look like they're fun to read. Mm -hmm. And the names escape me. I should have made a list. But anyway, so I love reading for fun. But when I'm writing, I'll have maybe three or four books like this, and I'll just scan through them and get inspiration mm -hmm. on a turn of phrase or a new thought or a quote. So I have, I read for two different, although Marquez is good for both. I have this one quote from him that I mm -hmm. love something to the extent that the heart eliminates the memory of the bad mm. so it can magnify mm -hmm. the good or something mm. the burden of the past something about the past and, yeah. it, and it, that you remember the good over the bad and yeah just yeah he has these little phrases that i just i love. just don't i have no idea what kind of a person he was when he woke up in the morning how he ever managed to put together his thoughts mm. you know they're just they're They are magical. They are. <laughs> What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is a good place for us to end. Any last piece of advice or recommendation? Well, I, I, would, I guess if I had a recommendation, it would be to seek serendipity, to really be open to those things that inspire you and to be able to move on them when they happen because life is a huge adventure. And I guess, if anything, I would say never say no. <laughs> Just <laughs> always say yes when something comes up and follow it and see where it goes. Yeah, and you have lived that. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, yeah, I cannot agree more. Then every time I said yes, something great came out something of it. Something wonderful happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's good to know you. Mm -hmm.